how we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. So we're actually up to uh, Acts chapter 3. We've learned about the day of Pentecost. They've had uh, Jesus ascended back into heaven. And uh, Peter comes and preaches. Imagine in that first sermon that Peter gave, the fear would have been, when I finish preaching, I'll get arrested. And they'll probably kill me like they killed Jesus. So they would have been always in the back of his head. So as we come to Acts chapter 3, what do we have here? We have here Peter's second sermon. And we have here the description of a man who'd been born blind. Uh, sorry, been born lame, I should say. Had been lame for 40 years as a beggar. He would go to the temple day by day and he's healed. And the massive impact that had and then the sermon that followed. But in fact, the book of Acts has 19 sermons in it. And this is the second of those 19 sermons. So if you've got a Bible handy, Acts chapter 3. And the first session is verses 1 to 11. And it's the miracle of the temple gate. And Acts chapter 3 verse 1 starts with these words. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple. Of course, Peter was the man Jesus picked to run the church. John was uh, Jesus' best friend. And uh, here they are going up to do ministry. Now the temple was a central place of worship for the church. Because they had no churches at that time. They had no buildings. And so what they do? They would go regularly to the temple. And that was like uh, their main teaching spot. That was their main ministry spot. That's where they meet up with each other. And so we find that uh, back a chapter earlier in Acts chapter 2. It says, day by day, the Christians were attending the temple together. And then uh, a couple of chapters afterwards, we find after uh, Peter and John get arrested one time, it says that during the night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and let them escape. And said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the temple worship was a very core component of who they are. And it describes in the next part that they're there at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. What else happens in the temple at 3 p.m.? It was the time of the evening sacrifice. So there's a whole blood sacrifice happening. And if we trust the traditions of later Judaism... They said that there's three times a day you're meant to pray. The third, the sixth, and the ninth hour. And where that idea come from? Two key places. In the book of Daniel. There's Daniel who's been told not to pray to his God. And if you do pray to other gods, you'll be killed. And in Daniel chapter 6, it says, Daniel continued to go into his house, which had windows in his upper room, open towards Jerusalem. And he'd get down on his knees beside those windows three times a day to pray to God and to praise him. So that idea of three times a day. And in Psalm 55 it says, Evening and morning and at noon will I pray. And uh, I don't know if it was Asperger's or literalism, but a lot of Jews said, well, evening, morning, that, 6, uh, sorry, it's at 9, 12, 3 p.m. we will pray. So that was a key part of what they did. And so here they are going to pray. They would have been going to minister, going to share the gospel with other Jews who were in the temple at that time, who were obviously very devout people. And it says there that uh, in chapter 2, verse 3, that a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that was called the beautiful gate. And he'd ask alms of those who were in the temple. And you'd say, well, why was a Jewish beggar at the temple? A couple of reasons. First thing is that if you were a Jewish beggar, you were not meant to beg from Gentiles. You're meant to ask for money from your own people, the Jews first. Therefore, you're at the temple. Secondly, if you're at a very narrow temple gate, everybody's coming towards the temple and we're all going to go through the gate, which means that everybody's going to be within a couple of metres of you. So when you beg, everybody's going to see your face. So you're going to guaranteed uh, 
a good crowd. The third thing is you're at the temple because there's a pious group of people. They're godly people, so chances are they'll be generous to you. They'll give you money. Now we also know from Acts chapter 4, verse 22, a chapter later, it says, The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. What do we know about this man? He was disabled from birth. Therefore, he spent his whole life begging. People would carry him to the temple in the morning. For the day he would beg, they'd come and carry him home at night. And that was his life. He was a man without hope. Here is a man without future. Here is a man who was lost and without options. And the only thing he could do was beg. In chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms. There's absolutely nothing unusual with that because everyone who went into the temple, he'd asked for money. So it wasn't he'd uh, pick them out thinking, oh, they're disciples, I'd better ask them. They were just part of the crowd coming towards him. And it says that Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And imagine if someone stopped and looked at him. That's the exception, not the norm, because most people wouldn't even look at him as they threw money at him. There's a sense that he was an, a nameless person. And John and Peter says, look at us. And the layman fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, silver and gold have I none. And the poor guy at this point is thinking, well, what's the point of talking to you guys if you don't have any money? Because that's what I'm about, I'm begging. Silver and gold have I none. But what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now it's interesting, the disciples don't say in the name of God, rise up and walk. They say in the name of Jesus. They were very powerfully aware that Jesus was God the Son. That the resurrection Christ had so changed their view of everything about life. They'd say pray in Jesus' name. Because he's not just a man, he's God's Son. Now this is uh, not the first miracle that we have after the day of Pentecost. Because back at chapter early in Acts 2.43 it says, The uh, disciples had done many signs and wonders had been performed through the apostles. But this is significant because this healing leads to Peter's preaching. And so what happens next? Verse 7, he took them by the right hand, they raise him up, and immediately his ankles and his feet were made strong. It goes on to say, leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. Imagine this guy's just exuberant with excitement. Now, many, many years ago, as a very young and intensely naive Christian, uh, I belonged to a ch an Anglican church at the time that would pray for people who needed healing. And uh, that's okay, I didn't mind praying for people. I thought it was a nice thing to do. And had a guy had one eye straight ahead, the other eye looked out the door. So whenever you looked at him, you weren't sure whether he was looking at you or looking somewhere else. And he just said, can you pray for me? And of course, I and another girl, we just prayed for this guy. And there's a sense of, you know, dear God, fix his eyes. But in reality, was I expecting his eyes to be fixed? No, I wasn't. I was just being a nice person praying for someone. And, uh, he said, and suddenly his eyes, like that, go like this. And they're straight. And he'd been born with eyes that were weird. And suddenly for the first time in his life, his eyes are straight. And he ran around the church with hundreds of people. And this guy's yelling and cheering and chanting and praising God and yelling out, I'm healed, I'm healed. And I'm thinking, please sit down, please be quiet. Now, we don't do that in church. But he was exuberant. And this guy has that exuberance about himself. 
And it says there in verse 9, All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asked for arms. Why? Because he was there day after day after day after day. Begging, begging, begging. Some were so uh, irritated by his begging that when they saw him there, they looked the other way as if they could not see him. And suddenly, he's healed for the first time. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Now for Peter and John, it's a healing, but it's also an entry point for them to share Jesus with the crowd. So while he hung to Peter and John and all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to the portico called Solomon. So they went to a slightly bigger part of the temple they could form as a crowd. And imagine that people would say, did you hear about the guy who got cured? Which guy? The guy who's down there. Really, he's been there forever. And so suddenly a crowd appears around them. And Peter and John saw them and addresses the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our own piety, we've made him walk. The disciples were very conscious it was not them who healed. It was Christ who healed. The disciples were very confident in the totality and the power of what Jesus could do. So Peter's sermon goes on. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. His name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. They did not beat about the bush. They said, you killed Jesus. And the crowd knew that they had been there. Some of those people there in front of Peter and John had yelled out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Others were in the crowd who said, you thought you were God, why don't you come off the cross? And now they're told their message. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, we're given the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. It says, And now, brothers, I know that you act in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all prophets, that his Christ would suffer, has been fulfilled. In other words, you guys were stubborn, you made mistakes, But that doesn't mean that is who you are for the rest of your life. What do they need to do? In verse 19, the words are very simple. And these words echo the first words that Jesus ever spoke in Mark and Matthew's Gospel. The first word uh, is just that one word centralised what they had to do. Repent. Peter says to them, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Now sadly, there are people today who are embarrassed by judgment, who are embarrassed by terms like hell, who are embarrassed by repentance and conversion. And they would like people to somehow become Christians through the soft option. Now it's interesting, uh, 
you know, it's easy to try and take the soft road always in life. And sometimes the right road is the hard road. And this is what this road is, repentance. So what does repentance mean? It means to turn from evil, turn that which is evil, to turn to that which is good. And in the Old Testament, it's used often. So you have things like this in Ezekiel 14. Repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. Because in the Old Testament, repentance was very much that people had wandered away to false gods, wandered away to false beliefs, and the sense was, come back to that which is true, that which is wholesome, that which is honest. So what is, it, uh, what is involved in repentance? It's to give up our evil intentions and our evil deeds. Our evil motives and our evil conduct. And it's a radical change of life. Now a striking example of this is found in the book of Isaiah chapter 1. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. So what does repentance have? Two sides. The first is that of turning from bad to good. And the second is used the idea of converting or transforming. So who brings this repentance about? The Bible is very strong. It says God is the one who brings us to repent. God who is a sovereign by his mercy brings about within us a conscious desire to follow him. Secondary is us where we're brought to a point of sorrow in our life as we examine our life and say, there are things about my life which are wrong. So what does the repentance involve? To repent and convert involves obedience to God's revealed will. Repentance says, I'm going to put my trust solely in God alone. I will turn from that which is evil and ungodly and turn towards Christ in my life. It's a total change of mind. So repentance is seen by change in your attitudes, your heart, and your motives. As I said, Jesus started his ministry. Matthew and Mark, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now it's crucially important for you and I to grasp that repentance is not our works of salvation. Repentance is God working within us to call us home. Why? That there be a time of refreshing may come. From verse 20. From the presence of the Lord that you may send Christ, the appointed one, to us. So there's a sense of uh, transformation. We have a, a lovely friend who's a surgeon. And uh, years ago he went through a crisis in his life. Uh, that meant for a couple of years he could not work at all. He hit a severe depression. And at the end of it he and his wife examined his life and he realised that he'd been doing... 70 to 80 hours a week for the whole of his life. He said, I don't want to do that type of hours. That's stupid. I'm now in my 60s. So they worked out a couple of things. He would work a couple of months a year here in Australia. He would work a couple of months a year in country towns where they can't get surgeons. And then he would use the money he had earned from the first two jobs to spend three months a year overseas doing mission work as a surgeon for free. He'd bring all the bandages, the medications. He'd just pay for everything himself and pay for his own cost for three months he'd go overseas and operate and uh, in a week he'd do hundreds of operations and there's a delightful story where uh, he was in the Philippines with a, a lovely friend of ours who was translating and uh, he had a man come up to him and uh, he said look I'm sorry uh, you're going to die a slow and horrible death 
and that's you're going to be, what's going to happen to you. And the man was shocked and said, can't you operate? He says, there's no operation I can do to save your life. You know, a slow, horrible death. Can't I be helped? He says, yes, but I can't help you. Who can help me? You've got to help yourself. Why? Stop smoking. <laughs> now, I must admit, he, uh, his way of doing an anti-smoking campaign is a lot stronger than what I would use. But his words were honest. If you keep on smoking, you will die. If you keep on living your life without Jesus, you will face eternity in hell. This anti-smoking warning is no different to what Christians need to share with others. That we do face judgment. And there is a day that is set for each of us. And none of us know the hour of the day. Now for me, that day was nearly uh, five weeks ago when I was in hospital with my wife graciously forced me to go under my massive protest. And I arrived there and the doctors put me straight into uh, to, uh, uh, medications, antibiotics. And uh, they said, you've got blood poisoning. When they said, you've got blood poisoning, I heard, you've got the common cold. That's all I heard. You know, you're a little bit sick. It's okay. And I'm in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, day here, I'll be out of hospital. It's okay. That's great until you do what any wise modern person does. You Google blood poisoning. And it says one out of three people die. And at this level of sickness, one out of two people die. I said, that was me. I was the one out of two. I tossed the coin and it went heads, not tails. Otherwise, I would have been dead. We don't know when we're going to die. But we do need to know that we have confidence in Jesus, that he is our Lord and our Saviour. So here they've preached, the people have heard powerfully, and the temple guard's response was to arrest Peter and John. What about the crowd there in chapter 4, verse 4? Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came that day were 5,000. They get arrested and they're asked, by what power or by what name did you do this? And they said, Jesus. And the people got upset saying, well, it works. What can we say? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them in chapter 4, verse 9, By what means was this man healed? Let us be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it is by the name of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And chapter 4, verse 12 is a great verse. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. It is not our good works. It is not our birth. It is not our family. It is not our wealth. It is not our country. There is nothing but Christ and Christ alone that saves us. It is Christ and Christ alone that brings our salvation. Because in chapter 4 verse 14 it says, But seeing the man who has been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Because the reality was this man is healed. Jesus was killed and Jesus is alive. Everything they said was true. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another and said, What shall we do with these men? For there's a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. The truth was the truth. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. So they called them and charged them to speak no longer in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered very powerfully, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And that is the same for you and I today. 
At times, being a Christian is popular. At other times, it is not. There are people who, because uh, I'm a minister, they quite like me being involved in uh, organisations or events, and uh, they greatly value my presence. And uh, I had quite an offensive nickname. I won't uh, give you the full details. At a school that I taught scripture in, that school's now been closed because it was a very ultra left-wing militant school that was anti anything to do with the gospel. And all the teachers did their utmost to stop any kid from ever going to scripture because of their bitterness and their anger, not against me, not even against the church, but against Christ. What is our faith based on? Jesus and Jesus alone. What is our beliefs based on? Jesus and Jesus alone. What is our salvation based on? Jesus and Jesus alone. Now the amazing thing is it says that all who call upon his name will be saved. From the simplest little kid in a scripture class who's been told how to become a Christian, bows their head and says, Dear Jesus, come into my life. To a man in their 90s, after years of fighting against God, who says, Jesus, come into my life. God answers that prayer powerfully. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father God, this is a moving sermon by Peter that reminds us that you do save. And this morning, God, if there's those amongst us who have never prayed this prayer, may today be the day they can say, Dear Jesus, come into my heart as my Lord and my Saviour, my Master and my King. For you alone redeem and forgive and save. Father, be the Lord of my life and I'll live for you. Amen. We have our final song.